Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are starting season two of The Magicians. Hooray! Yeah! So we're going to be talking about Knight of Crowns. Chris, could you give us a recap of what happens? We open as Quentin flees the wellspring, seeking help, and comes across a witch in a gingerbread house who agrees to help at the cost of a vial of his blood. When they get back, Alice emerges from the wellspring, explaining that she still has the power of a god and has already patched up her companions. So they plan to access the armory of books at Castle Whitespire. Penny uses a magic river to restore his injured hands, but offends the keeper of the river, who curses his newly restored hands. Meanwhile, Julia and Martin Chatwin make a magical pact that he will help her kill Reynard, and then she will put down the Leo Blade. As they investigate Renard's massacres, Martin encourages Julia to remove her shade, like he did. The companions meet the Knight of Crowns, where Elliot and Quentin are crowned kings and Alice and Margot queens of Fillory. But when they get to Castle Whitespire, the armory just points them back to Breakbills to find the power to kill the beast. Okay, well why don't we go right into our magic moments. What are yours from this episode? There's so many. There are a lot. (laughs) (laughs) This is the longest magic moment section that I've taken notes on thus far in the show. My (laughs) outline goes from A to J. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But yeah, I I had a couple moments where I thought the music was really interesting in the show in helping to set the scene. Uh, just in the very beginning, as Quentin's running through the woods. Totally, the like intense, kind of eerie music that's It's like going this on. Re- intensely reverberating music, mm-hmm. like a deep bass. It almost reminded me of like some th- times in Stranger Things, mm-hmm. with like having just a, a intense and ominous, ominous, sinister kind mm-hmm. of thing. It really, you know, as you're entering the season, highlighting how badly the first season ended <laughs> it must be a monday onward to glory yeah as elliot says <laughs> but i think that that beginning of that episode and, and still the kind of tone of the episode is really interesting in contrast with the scene on the rainbow bridge we see this really beautiful bridge covered with flowers across this amazing view and this this just wonderful chasm. And, and the music there is more uplifting. And we get a moment where the characters aren't saying anything. It's just this, this drone shot of them on the bridge. But it's so clear that they are appreciating the beauty of Fillory at the same time as they have experienced so much of the horrors of Fillory in fighting the beast. They also get these moments of, wow, this is just a magical place. Mm -hmm. And there is just amazing things that we could never get access to at home here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels like there's an abundance of magic. Exactly. And I love, too, that in that first scene, he's just running through this forest yelling for help. And so it clearly shows how he is not magically knowledgeable or gifted enough to try to heal his friends. Mm -hmm. Like, he runs for help from someone else. So, yeah, it's just an interesting thought of, like, yeah, how unprepared they were to Mm. face the beast, as well as when he trips and it has an aerial view of the forest and Mm. him just, like, laying in it to see how big everything is compared to, like, how small he is. Uh, I just thought it was interesting cinematography. Yeah, totally. 
I also had some just kind of character moments that I thought were really amazing. I don't know what yours are yet, but yes. <laughs> just Penny <laughs> holding the box with his hands in it, wide-eyed and in shock. <laughs> and like, no one's even paying attention to him. Yeah. He has oh. to like advocate for himself like, hey, I don't have hands. I need to <laughs> deal with this. I'm just like, oh my god, Penny. Poor Penny. Especially when Penny is integral to being able to get out of Fillory. Right. <laughs> He's the most important one mm-hmm. for them and their magical resources and the abilities they need. So it's like, you should be paying attention to what's... He's the one who needs to be protected. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I also loved Margot's line of, if we even are heroes, we could be comic <laughs> relief. Yeah. Another one of those great, like meta Mm -hmm. engagements that the show does so well of where are we in the story and Mm -hmm. when you're at your lowest Mm -hmm. and you're Margot, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's might be the best way of looking at it yeah totally but we also of course have to talk about elliot as the king of course hiking elliot yes the champagne king (laughs) so good exactly why he should be the high king absolutely (laughs) so such great presence and humor and we also meet the new fen yay new fen i mean maybe (laughs) old fen would have been good but we never saw her more than that for you know a couple scenes yeah exactly Uh, but yes we we like fens and even that's the thing is even this new fen who does have some lines but she doesn't have anything that's crucial to the plot, Mm-mm. you know, a lot to chew on. She just has this kind of charming enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when Elliot says, I think I like her, like, I remember the first time watching, thinking the same thing. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I do like her. That's, she's charming. Like, that's fun. And, and spoiler alert, she'll continue to be great throughout the series mm-hmm. uh, for as long as she's in it as a side character. But yeah, I just am excited to see Fen and, and already, yeah, find her really charming. Yeah, yeah. She comes in with a presence. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I also love how that line, like, yeah, she seems charming. Mm-hmm. But then it it takes you back to the reality of the situation yeah. where he says, I think I like her. I hope I like yeah, her. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, yeah, this is the rest of your life situation. Absolutely. Well, we could probably keep going on and on. So what are your magic moments? <laughs> well, continuing to talk about Elliot. Mm-hmm. I love the spell he did with the flowers to get the location mm. to the Rainbow Bridge. It was just a really beautiful thing. And I think it, that's really one of the first beautiful, whimsical things that we actually see in Fillory. Mm. Because, yeah, everything was going bad. <laughs> <laughs> But also, I think, shows some of Elliot's skill. Mm-hmm. I've just found it really fascinating that he's using flowers and leaves to do it and all of that, when then kind of juxtaposed to later when Quentin is talking to Alice about, we all know the spell to try to grow this tree from mm-hmm. the seed, and she's like, I'm not an herbalist. And so it was just kind of interesting because Elliot's not an herbalist. He's a part of the physical discipline and yet he's stepping up to do something to try to locate this 
it kind of, to me, was reminding me back to when Penny was talking to Alice and he's like, stop being like, oh, I can't do it. I don't Mm. know what to do. Just do it. You know, you can. Uh, So, yeah, it was just interesting to see that Elliot does it because he can. Yeah, yeah. And because it's needed. Mm -hmm. Also, a wonderful Elliot moment is at this little coronation when they meet the Knight of Crowns, the first thing Elliot does is slightly bow to him, Mm -hmm. which I just thought was a great way to set up. Like, he is High King, and he can feel... You know, Elliot can come off as pretentious and entitled in in certain ways, Mm -hmm. not not in gross ways we see uh, men being entitled in the world, but, like, here you can see automatically the first thing he does is slightly show respect to somebody like he doesn't know yeah and it's just like shows that he's more humble than of course i'm the high king i'm stepping up you should bow to me sort of thing yeah it's a it's diplomatic because Mm -hmm. he recognizes that even though he's high king he is still an outsider in this world yeah exactly he's not Florian, and then obviously automatically goes into a Patrick Swayze monologue. It's just delightful. I've never seen... Dirty Dancing? Yeah. Not really. Like, I've seen... Maybe I've seen it once when I was really young. And I've seen, you know, some of the main Yeah, I've seen scenes, that scene, basically. But I don't... Re- yeah, I don't really remember it. So I kind of want to go back and watch just to compare. <laughs> but uh, he, he takes his coat off. And, you know, he's just like... His presence, his charm, Elliot's just fantastic. And, like, even the small (laughs) details where he chooses Alice and not Margot because the character in the movie is, like, the more buttoned-up person that he helps to (laughs) learn how to dance dirtily or whatever. (laughs) And so Alice is more that character. Totally. Yeah, it's just (laughs) so good. And I think it's, it's perfect for what Quentin says to him when he crowns him Destiny is bullshit, but somehow it's like you were meant to be hiking. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what we were saying just a couple episodes ago, Quentin. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, besides him wanting to be known as the Champagne King, he is crowned High King Elliot the Spectacular. Delicious. Is, yeah. And also just the way that the two of them look at each other, Elliot and Quentin, <laughs> throughout that entire process is just... Okay. 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 <laughs> Threesome lingering feelings? Exactly. Or... Right? There's there's something there. <laughs> uh, and again, when he, when Elliot crowns Alice, he apologizes mm. and says that he has some character defects and he's working on it which is yeah just a a nice way for him to take some responsibility for his actions without going into a whole thing because the police could appear at any moment (laughs) kill them all you know but totally but it's also such a marked difference from where he was just a couple of days ago before he married fen and before he took on that responsibility Mm -hmm. when he was still drinking and doing drugs you know to to escape his life like here he is like you said taking responsibility he is 
not only noting his defects, which he's always been happy to do, mm-hmm. but he's saying that he's working on it. Like he's mm-hmm. he's showing that this is really a new trajectory for him, which is yeah, great to see. Absolutely. And I also love the moment when Elliot crowns Margot, mm. High Queen. Well, it's so great and fitting that they are the High King and Queen because it's not a marriage situation mm-hmm. that makes Margot High Queen in the traditional patriarchal, monarchical yeah. hierarchies. But he's like, of course she is High Queen. <laughs> and he names her the Destroyer, which is... Apt. Yes. Also perfect. But it's just a really sweet moment, too, because he says, I've known what you truly are since the day we met. Mm-hmm. Long may you reign. And, like, as you were talking about before in previous episodes when we were thinking about Margot's POV, you feel the closeness that Margot has wanted mm-hmm. to regain with Elliot and the meaningfulness and the connection that they have with each other, which, yeah, is just really nice because... That's something that Margot's been missing from their relationship since everything that's happened with Mike. So, yeah, it was it was just really nice. Yeah. And she then goes and crowns Quentin, and she makes her own comment about how she could be cruel and hilarious, mm-hmm. but she also wants to be honest and to say what she admires about him and also to apologize I think that that is, in a way, her living up to what Elliot is saying of he sees her for who she is. She has both of those sides to her, the cruel and the hilarious, but also the understanding and insightful and caring. And yeah, it's just nice to see how Elliot knows that of her and then her illustrating that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and with the insightfulness... Crowning Quentin, the moderately socially maladjusted. (laughs) Delightful. (laughs) The little last thing I wanted to mention is just when Julia is going to investigate murders that happened. Mm -hmm. Her just changing her driver's license to a different sort of ID that can get her into this situation just shows like how much she's grown magically over her time with Marina's Hedge as well as with Richard and all of those resources. So it was just like a really small little moment that shows, oh, wow, she's powerful. She basically can create from Doctor Who the psychic paper, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. (laughs) Which is nice to have in your back pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. And, and how effortless it is for her. Mm-hmm. But why don't we go into our next section, Enough with the Magic Moments. <laughs> what do you have for setting in society? Well, for one, I just love the idea of an armory of books. <laughs> I know, right? This is the Ravenclaw armory. <laughs> Absolutely. But that's the other thing is that when magic is your most powerful weapon, knowledge increases your ability to do magic. And so it it actually makes sense. But I just, yeah, appreciate that the language of the realm illustrates that relationship with power. Mm -hmm. Uh, That not literally knowledge is power in a way here that is just, yeah, really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
But I had a couple other deeper ones I wanted to talk about. Just first, we get introduced to the shade in this episode. Mm -hmm. The part inside of you that is like a soul, but the part of you that feels emotions like pain and love. I think he said the slimmest part of the soul. Mm -hmm. Or I thought it as the soul is the slimmest part of the shade. But Hmm. maybe, maybe, yeah. But Martin talks about how Julia will feel better and happy without it, which I find really interesting because Mm -hmm. happiness is also an emotion. And so it seems to be putting certain emotions, you know, as part of your experiences in, in different parts of your being. Because as soon as Martin explains how he got rid of his own shade, he then does his little hum and dance, Mm -hmm. which I think is its own form of entertainment and joy or expression of that, at least. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it, it raises questions about what a shade provides for you what it means to live without a shade, as mm-hmm. Martin does, which certainly has something to do with his monstrosity, with him losing what it means to be human, as they've described in previous episodes. But we also see more and more, as we're spending more time with him, other elements of his personality that that complicate that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's clear that it's not just emotions that it cuts off, because if we think back to when... Martin, through Mike's body, killed Jane. Mm. There was rage. Mm. Because he broke her neck and then proceeded to squeeze her head so tight that it burst, Mm. right? It felt like there was a real hatred there of this person, probably with feelings of betrayal or feelings of we're siblings why are you trying to kill me you know i'm Mm -hmm. not killing you but then he did you know and so uh, it's clear that it doesn't just erase all of the emotions that a person has yeah uh, because yeah i mean that's a very emotional response to the situation Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we'll learn a little bit more about the shade or get more ideas of of the shade as as we continue on with the series for sure yeah It's just another one of those things that adds more cosmological questions to Mm -hmm. the world when the metaphysical, the shade, the soul, becomes physical in a way. Yeah, what does that mean for people who live in a world where they have that knowledge and the ability to even remove that? Yeah, it just raises new questions about the understanding of the universe. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I wanted to talk about in this section was based off of the altercations that we see at the torrent (laughs) uh, between Penny and the keeper of the river. Oh my god, I love Penny in this scene. I know, yeah, it's great. But I think that this entire interaction raised some really interesting questions and points about, you know, who has access to natural resources. Uh, Penny Mm -hmm. calls him out and and says, are you officially affiliated (laughs) with the torrent? You know, are you a part of it that you can make people pay to use it. It is a natural resource that's mm-hmm. out here for everyone. Why do you, why are you its keeper? Why are you able to put certain restrictions on it? Yeah, I mean, this obviously ties into the use and misuse and hoarding of natural resources that have come with society, especially with the rise of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I even love how Margot offers to pay with diamonds and 
he just says, what the heck is diamond? (laughs) Which very much reminded me of how the Spanish in Central and South America kept demanding gold from (laughs) the indigenous peoples. And they're like, this really soft metal, this is what you want? (laughs) I mean, sure, you can have it. Jade is actually the most important mineral around here. Do <laughs> you don't want these jade statues? Okay, here's the shiny gold stuff, I guess, because they just had a completely different perspective of what is valuable. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that we think gold is valuable is completely arbitrary. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the desire to claim all of what you see as valuable, I think, is a important part of capitalism and colonialism, mm-hmm. as, as we see here. And in particular, thinking about water rights, I just couldn't stop thinking about some of the ways in which water rights have been negotiated and claimed in our own society. Yeah. Oh, the Colorado River. It's a really good example. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The Colorado River, uh, which supplies water to a great many people in states and countries, In 1922, there was the Colorado River Compact between Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, California, Nevada, and Arizona about how those states will be able to access that water, specifically saying that the states in the upper river can't use all the water because it needs to flow down to the other states in the lower river. And dividing it up with higher percentages than the river actually provided in water. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then when the upper river states haven't used all of the water when there's been surplus water, California just used all the rest, basically. (laughs) And of course, this whole deal left out Mexico, which is where (laughs) the Colorado River empties into the sea Mm -hmm. in the Colorado River Delta in Mexico, who were completely out of the compact and really fought against the overuse of the river for decades. It wasn't until the early 2000s that they really had a seat at the table in negotiations about how the Colorado River would be used. But by that time, they were getting about a third of the amount of water as the river delta required. Mm. Um, So, you know, just a completely one-sided and unfair in how this water, which is, you know, important and a natural resource... (laughs) is utilized. Well, and also indigenous communities were cut out of, you know... Any of have, these discussions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that actually... I, I Another example that came to mind was the Hetch Hetchy River Valley. So Hetch Hetchy is a valley located right next to Yosemite in California. There's a river that runs through it. It's this beautiful preserved... It's currently part of the Yosemite National Park. But the water from that area has absolutely been contested. The Miwok and Paiute have been living in that area, utilizing that valley and the resources there for over 6,000 years. Mm-hmm. But as soon as Americans came in, uh, things started to change. You know, And of course, things changed earlier with the Spanish and Mexicans, but Americans really took it to a next level, oh. as we like to do. <laughs> so uh, this was actually a huge part of the conservation movement 
what John Muir started uh, or was was one of the leaders of. And this mm-hmm. idea that, well, we need national parks to be places set aside for the maintenance of our natural landscape, that this is a natural resource that should be shared for the people. Of course, when they meant the people, they mostly meant elite white people who had <laughs> access to go on a trip to a national park. I mean, don't they always? Isn't that from the beginning of the Constitution of the United States? Essentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. But... Um, <laughs> Having a national park in and of itself, you know, as much as I believe in conservation, I think that that's important. We also have to recognize that it has its roots in settler colonialism, in Absolutely. displacing indigenous people, in maintaining this in a classist way. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's only in a capitalist and imperialist world that we need to set aside. <laughs> conserving (laughs) the environment like Mm -hmm. nature things that are here and live and are part of ecosystems you know that was not necessary before right and is not also not necessary in places like bhutan Mm -hmm. that are just like yeah i think i think that country is almost 80 percent natural you know Mm. forests and everything and like i mean i think they have enacted policies that prevent dipping below a certain percentage but like it's just part of that cultural value yeah of the environment around them so it's just like yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> when you have white people economic philosophies coming in then you it's like john muir did racist terrible things at the same time some of the only reason why some things are still preserved. So he's a very complicated person. Absolutely, yeah. And this was a a complicated time in the late 1800s when it it becomes this natural park at the same time that San Francisco is like, well, we're a growing city, we need water. Mm -hmm. And so there's this big debate that occurs until the earthquake and fire in 1906 that decimates San Francisco and changes a lot of politicians' minds that, okay, we need to access the water from this national park and divert it to a city 200 miles away because (laughs) it's a growing port that's necessary for our economic needs in the West. And so that's what happens in 1913. They pass a law that says that Hetch Hetchy will be damned. And so... uh, (laughs) Pun intended. Not intended, but... Come on. Uh, And so, yeah, when that dam is built, it basically floods the entire valley, taking away that as a conserved natural resource for, you know, whatever person wants to go for recreation in the John Muir sense, away from the indigenous people, Mm -hmm. taking the waters that flow from it away from the farmers who rely on it in order to have it there as a water and power source for San Francisco. In order to build the wealth of the people that can then go have recreation in this exactly park that he set up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it shows these kinds of, like, conflicting needs of natural resources and how those have been argued over. And, like, the need of a growing city which has more people living in it than those probably who go to Yosemite National Park or who live in these farmlands. But it's also displacing indigenous people it's also like you know there, there it's just a lot of complications that come around so seeing this river in fillory that has this important magical power the ability to heal really really awful injuries 
the idea that that would be restricted, that you could only use it for 20 gold pieces or five mm. years of, of service, <laughs> of enslavement, you know? Like, these, I think, are also exploitative means it's just not capitalist in the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's an element of that there, but I think that it's more, as I'll talk about in the next section, about these kinds of compacts, these agreements that occur within this magical realm and the power that those come with. Um, and that in order to gain access to something magical and powerful, you have to give something, whether that giving is something physical or metaphysical. You know, there has to be a, a, a sacrifice of some sort. Yeah, I just, I find that interesting. And of course, it sparked some Ravenclaw historian <laughs> rabbit holes that I went down. So, absolutely. Um, oh, and I think it's really poignant in a different way, too, in the sense that it's this white man who is telling a South Asian man that he can't use a resource mm-hmm. unless he pays an exorbitant amount. But then it's flipped in a way, too, because. Penny is the outsider mm-hmm. to Fillory. In a sense, you know, this Fillorian person, not that he, yeah, has the legal rights to do what he's doing, but maybe in the apocalyptic Martin Chatwin beast Fillory, this is something that is the only way that he, he can survive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. And then going back to the the Bhutan example, if you travel to Bhutan, tourists have to pay every single day that they're there a certain fee just to be there in Bhutan, which I think is absolutely amazing Mm -hmm. for a very small country in Asia who, again, has preserved their natural environment. It's like, if you want to come here and enjoy what we've done you have to pay to use it and and enjoy it because this is our community and you're coming into it, you know? So it's just kind of interesting because it's like, well, these people from another planet want to come and use the magic from your torrent, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, it it brings up a lot of questions of varying ethics. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, what else did you have to talk about for setting in society? A small thing is that the high king couldn't use the royal chariot and wouldn't be let in the castle without being crowned. Hmm. There's something about this crown. It's it's worthless in a sense, except if we make it as gold and we arbitrarily say gold is important, you know, like those types of things. It's symbolic. It's not real. (laughs) Uh, And there's a part of it that it's like, you need to look the part. You've already taken the blood test that says that you are this, but people won't accept it unless you look a certain way Mm. and you have to like conform to that or people just won't believe you. Yeah, it highlights the power of symbols, Mm -hmm. you know, which is true in our society too. But yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, but the main one that I wanted to talk about is misogyny, you you know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The thing I'm always ready to talk about. Because Quentin says that Julie is not entirely sane. Right. He says that at first, and then later in the episode, he says the same thing, that she's not sane right now. I wouldn't be. Which is completely dismissive of her choices and her thought processes. Yeah. Going into the decision that she made. 
it's like saying, ah, she's being emotional or hysterical, saying she's not rational Mm -hmm. because of this traumatic thing that happened to her. And that's not at all true. Yeah. She's making a super smart decision. Sure, Martin can kill people, but he can't take their magic away like Reynard can. Mm -hmm. Like, Reynard is a god. Martin is a sort of human, sort of magical creature that he's become through the wellspring. But a god is something that's different. (laughs) And Martin doesn't seek out people to rape and murder them for fun. Reynard does. Mm -hmm. And there might be several different ways of killing the beast, but there are probably fewer ways of killing a god. And so this is a smart decision that she's making. Not only that, she builds loopholes into the Hortus Bond contract that they sign. These are rational decisions that are intelligent and are founded in logic. Mm Mm-hmm. Yet Quentin is just dismissing her choices as not sane mm-hmm. because of what's happened to her. It just really, really bugs me. Like, it's just so frustrating because this thing that happened to her is horrific. First of all, it's not necessarily your information to share to these people that she doesn't know, but to diminish what she's doing and think that he just knows best and what she's doing is stupid because she's being emotional and not using her brain is not only so inaccurate but it's also sexist and terrible to anyone and especially to someone who's experienced the trauma she's experienced yeah and who you know so well and you know is an intelligent and thoughtful and smarter than you exactly <laughs> like <laughs> yeah and what we know as the audience is her choices are the only thing that's making the difference in the result of them not all just getting killed by martin mm-hmm. and so it's just like oh quentin stop talking <laughs> totally yeah it's it's another <laughs> way better. for him to to cast himself as a hero who needs to save a woman. Oh, well, she's not in her right mind. So what we need to do is we need to go and stop her from what she's doing so that we can do what's supposed to happen or what's Mm -hmm. right or whatever it might be, you know, which is, yeah. We know the right thing to do. She's not doing it, Uh, which is the opposite of what Dean Fogg had said to him when he had asked, what are we supposed to do? And Fogg just said, I don't know, Mm -hmm. because we don't know what's going to come next. And then Quentin's just like, this is the thing that needs to happen in this way, and she's messing it up because she's being emotional or hysterical or illogical, Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, again, not true. (laughs) So, yeah, that was my main one. (laughs) Very important. But why don't we go on to our themes and schemes? What do you have? The main one I want to talk about is this idea of making deals in Fillory. How the gingerbread witch tells Quentin, for one, I'm not giving you the blood back, you know, but that strangers from Fillory only look whimsical, but they aren't just this fairy tale caricature. They are complicated, they are full beings, and the choices that you make 
are going to have consequences, Mm -hmm. which is also what the Riverkeeper tells to Penny, that Mm -hmm. even just being a jerk can have consequences and that you need to learn how to live with those consequences. I think this is really interesting because they are people who are not only having to live within Fillory, but now the rulers of Fillory. And I can imagine that Philorians are going to see them and their actions and be frustrated with many of them because mm-hmm. they are going to be making very consequential decisions without always thinking them through, without always giving them the credence or the insight that they are owed. Mm-hmm. And that those consequences are mostly going to impact the Philorians. Yeah. And so, yeah, I appreciate how we start to see them get pushback from that. Them have people who are asserting their own agency within this world and not just saying, well, this world is your playground, but instead your choices are going to matter and have Mm -hmm. lasting consequences. Yeah, I think it's a really important theme. It's also showing, again, the, <laughs> the disparity, not only in knowledge of Fillory, and, but magical talent, too, or, mm-hmm. or magical knowledge. Because the witch at the gingerbread house, she's aware of the time loops as well. Mm-hmm. And the man at the torrent, he tells Penny... You know, you need to understand that actions have consequences, especially with the position you will occupy soon. Yeah. So he clearly has some sort of outside this time frame knowledge mm-hmm. of, of Penny and like the future, which is really interesting. And so it's like there these are two people who are way more magically knowledgeable or gifted, mm-hmm. yet they are going to have to be ruled by these random humans who haven't even graduated with their masters. You know, it's yep. it's interesting, right? And uh, I could see why people would get frustrated. Valorians, um, uh, I would. But I will say, I think Penny, this isn't on that point, but because you said, like, you know, when, when he was being a jerk. And I was like, it's not to say that he wasn't. But he tried a couple times being nice to the guy. And then when he said 20 gold pieces or five years of servitude, that's when Penny Lawson's <laughs> like, no, I am not going to be your servant for five years. So he, he tried to be nice. He even smiled at the guy. Yeah. So this is maybe a little progress on Penny's side. That's true. That's true. I think the word <laughs> that the guy used was actually arrogance more than mm. being a jerk. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I'm just I'm just defending Penny Lills. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the theme or scheme. Uh, but I think also wrapped up in this idea of consequences is something that I was thinking is near the end of the episode when everybody is going to go back to Fillory, but Elliot can't. Mm-hmm. And he said, "I took one for the team to the tune of the rest of my life." Yeah. Because time doesn't run the same as it does on Earth, he might just have to live out his days waiting for his friends to return until he dies alone. And, like, this was a decision that he made, and he made it for the team and for everybody who would potentially be killed by the beast. But, yeah, it's, it's a decision that has consequences for not only Elliot and, and his life, but all of those who know him. Yeah, absolutely. 
But I, I really like that because so often, especially with time loop things, right, consequences are taken out of the equation. But since this was the end of these time loops, yeah, the decisions that he made. Maybe in past time loops, he was also crowned High King and, and all of this. Uh, but if he died, then the rest of his life was quite short. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I think it's just a good way to, yeah, ground it in. No, there, there are consequences for the action and that the show will take consequences for action seriously. Totally. Yeah. Well, why don't we move on to our last main section, which is from another point of view. Whose POV are you thinking about in this episode? Yeah, so I was thinking about Alice's perspective, because I think we see Alice struggling a lot in this episode. She's still juiced up from Ember's gift, yet she's also dealing with the failure of killing the beast and Mm. what to do next. Very early on, she states she has no idea what to do. I find that language really illuminating because it's not we don't know what to do, it's I don't know what to do. We see that as, for Alice, something that is centered on herself. It's not about the team, it's about her, and not only the anxiety that that provokes, but also how rare that is for her to not know what to do. I don't think the group always does what she thinks they need to do, but Alice tends to have an idea of what should be done. Whether it's correct or not, she has thoughts on it. Exactly. Here, Alice is saying that despite everyone's predicament, she doesn't know what to do. And later on, she says, I need that armory. Not we need that armory, but I need it. Mm -hmm. And so I see this really interesting individualism that Alice has in these moments where she's focused on her own needs, her own position. And I think that in part, that's because she is the most powerful of them. If anyone's going to kill the beast, it'll be her because she still has this god power. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also because she is dealing with her failure and is having a hard time with it. She mentions that she's afraid of freezing again under the pressure, and she blames herself for their failure. She's, yeah, worried about what to do and whether she'll be able to do it. And I like how in this episode we see her conversations with Quentin and her kind of going through these issues, harkening back to previous conversations, harkening back to the things that we've learned about Alice so far. You mentioned the conversation with Penny, where he said, stop pretending like you don't know what to do or you're unsure and just, you know, be yourself. And then Quentin brings up this conversation that they had on the rooftop where she says she's always holding back. And he encourages her to stop doing that. And she grows this tree, this really impressive feat of magic, and sees that magic is kind of just like breathing for her once she stops holding back. It comes so naturally to her that she can, yeah, do this really impressive amount of magic. But she's also still struggling with what to do more generally in her life. (laughs) Uh, Because she talks about how she still wants to be friends with Quentin, and they're not getting back together, but then she kisses him. I know. (laughs) It's like, what are you doing? (laughs) And so, yeah, I I wonder if there's a part of Alice that, you know, as she is trying to let her magic flow and not not hold it back, not 
hold herself back in those ways. She's also not entirely holding herself back with Quentin, even though she certainly should be. (laughs) And that can just be a hard thing to navigate. Uh, I know that I've navigated certain things where I'm like, okay, I have this thing I want to do, but is it the wisest thing? I want to be myself and like having to navigate that and, you know, it not always being the best choice as we've talked about with my head injuries and (laughs) other kinds of things that I've done. So yeah, I just, um, I find Alice who's not high queen, who doesn't have as many of the kind of plot forward moments in this episode. I just wanted to, yeah, think a little more through what's going on for her and what she's struggling with. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't know. <laughs> I feel like a lot of times when I talk about Alice on this podcast, I'm just complaining. <laughs> Such a hater. <laughs> it's just, she's a very hard character for me. And like, she is given the title Queen Alice the Wise. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually think that's fitting. I don't think she has a lot of wisdom. I think she has a mm. lot of knowledge and I think she has intelligence, but I don't think that she has a lot of wisdom, which causes her to continually make bad choices or selfish choices. The hope would be that if somebody has wisdom, they wouldn't only be, yeah, so individualistic and it's about what they want or what they think or, you know, whatnot. Yeah. And, like, she says to Quentin before the tree, before the kiss, the thing I'm really mad at isn't the cheating part, but the part that made me lose you. And I'm like, that is bullshit. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry. The only reason you're losing him is because of the cheating part, Mm -hmm. right? And it's less losing him and it's more like you saying, no, I'm not going to be with you anymore because this thing hurt me too much for us to repair, right? And I mean, not that they tried to repair it or even really have a conversation about it, which again is not wisdom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that and then kissing him and and then saying we're not getting back together. And it's just like this whole situation is the opposite of wisdom, (laughs) in my opinion. So yeah, I just like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like... Maybe the fact is that she struggles with wisdom, and so then when her knowledge can't provide her with a solution to a problem, she doesn't know what else to do. Hmm. She doesn't handle that well. No. No, she she doesn't. Yeah, and, and how much wisdom is there in holding yourself back educationally mm-hmm. because you don't want people to dislike you? Like, I don't, I don't know. I just, I feel like, yeah, she flounders a lot. And I think part of that is because of her lack of wisdom versus like her being so narrowly goal-oriented. She went to break bills to find out what happened to Charlie. And then she wanted to bring him back, even at the expense of her life or the lives of anyone around them. And then when he was bound, she left break bills, was living wherever, doing like gardening. (laughs) You know, it's just like, she really has been just all over the place. And then she comes back and then she stays, you know. And so, yeah, I, I think that, she lacks direction when the direction she thinks she's supposed to go in doesn't pan out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think not, that, not that that's not a human thing. But. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting element is that she is a very intelligent person who's also very unsure. She's unsure about how to take 
setbacks. She's unsure about herself and how people see her. She's unsure about what to do in certain ways uh, outside of the, yeah, those very defined goals that she sets. Yeah, I, I think that that is an interesting character that I, I still enjoy watching and thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I get why you despise Alice so much. I don't despise her, but I was going to make a little snide comment. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, it's important to have someone there to bring some flaws. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whose perspective did you want to talk about? So I was really thinking about Martin. Oh, no flaws there. No, not at all. (laughs) Because him saying to Julia you're not what I expected, Mm. is, I think, us towards the beast, Mm. right? He's not what we expected. Both Julia, to him, is much more complicated than maybe past loop Julia's was Mm -hmm. because of her vastly different experiences and traumas. And for Martin... It's that too, right? Yeah. It's he is much more complex, you know, than just some monster big bad that mm-hmm. you have to fight and destroy. So I was thinking about him having both the what what seemed very like sinister song and danceness about everything in in previous renditions of it in other episodes but then now it's just kind of funny mm-hmm. you know his his cheerfulness in the face of all of these things watching tv you know mm-hmm. like doing these things and just feeling very comfortable in this space he's never been probably you know in, in the confidence of his own power as well as this contract they signed you know yeah because he knows every loophole. He's going to let her know that he knows every loophole. And they can deal with that when they come to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, he's able to actually enjoy things and be laughing at the TV and be humming and, you know, enjoy himself while still being logical in some ways when when they go to the place to find out about Reynard and Julia says he's still in Richard's body, mm-hmm. which she's upset about. Understandably, this person that meant a lot to her, who she spent a lot of time with, who helped her come back to magic in a way that she could love and embrace it and not fear herself uh, yeah. or what she could become through it. And Martin's just like, Richard doesn't care, darling. And so we have this, you know, kind of like removed logical side of him. We have this playful, even if it's socially inappropriate side. And then we also have this sensitive, caring side that is surprising or unexpected that he cares about Julia Mm -hmm. in a way that he didn't expect because of a little bit of resonance or like solidarity with something that she's been through. Yeah. He even voices his trauma saying that a man who was supposed to care for me raped me over and over again. That helped him quote unquote, understand the truth (laughs) that you're powerful or you're weak. So for him saying that he knew it crippled him when he needed to be strong so he made this choice to sever his shade 
that's really kind of like this ultimate example of the fog Mayakovsky magical philosophy mm. of like strength and power yeah. uh, because he has gone to the point where he has power over so much. Mm-hmm. He has power over his own body. He has a sixth finger that he grew magically. He has power over an entire world, pretty much. He had power over Plover. He had power over Plover. He did not want him to die. He wanted his power over him to continue for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Or the rest of time, really. Mm-hmm. Yet he, I guess in his almost invulnerability, he chooses to be vulnerable. Mm. When he's talking about the shade, it's what makes you feel like the pain will burn you till there's nothing left. This is a very personal way of saying it from his own personal experiences of feeling that. Feeling so much pain that it felt like it would literally destroy him. And his only way to keep going on living was to sever that from himself. Yeah. Going back to the Strangled Heart episode where we were talking about people having damaging emotional pain and then closing themselves off from other people and how Penny and Elliot could be at risk of that from what happened to them. And then Marina has already pretty much done that Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. And I think he is so much more. He's closed himself off to all people. He is no one. Like, he doesn't even have henchmen, you mm-hmm. know? Like, he is completely alone. Uh, the only people he had were two prisoners he kept in the dungeon to, one, to torture, because that was his torturer, and then the other person to lure travelers. And... He's been that way for decades, just completely alone. I mean, even the time loops themselves, he's probably been stuck in for, what, 50 yeah. years? Like, if each time loop is a year or more, and there, this is the 40th, you yeah. know, uh, all of this time so alone and cut off from any connection to people, and now there's Julia here. She even asked him, why do you want to help me with my shade? Which I love the phrasing of that because that is the thing. He wants to help her, Mm -hmm. which is so not what you would expect from a beast who's just trying to kill them all, right? Which I think really does show that he doesn't just want to kill them because he wants to kill them. He wants to kill them because they're trying to stop him from gaining all access to Fillory, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, basically closing off all access and he wants to help her because he sees the pain that she's in and he knows some of that he says that martyring yourself to your pain will destroy you and if the pain destroys you uh reynard's gonna win anyway yeah so do this and that means he doesn't want her to be destroyed Mm -hmm. it's such a quick connection that he's made with someone And I don't know if part of that is because of the loneliness of being completely on his own. I just, I find his connection and his openness with Julia really meaningful and really sad. He clearly can connect with someone, Mm -hmm. even with what you know, has been said that, like, every human thing in him was burned up by the magic. And and before that, he even 
severed his shade and yet he can still connect he can still have compassion he can still want to help someone who's also suffering and the moment where he shows her what it's like to have her shade removed it's like a very intimate thing but like it doesn't feel creepy it doesn't feel like he's fondling her you know like this is him reaching into her soul and taking a piece of it yet as soon as she says put it back he does Mm -hmm. he's not going to do something against her consent with her body sure he'll kill people if they're going to try to stop him but he's not going to take something from her even though he was like you could be a worthy collaborator Mm -hmm. you get rid of your shade and like we could do anything we could uh, rule the galaxy you know and yeah beyond i think that's a big part of why he feels close to her too is that she bested him mm-hmm. and so it's not just that she's someone who he can relate with in what she's gone through but she can relate with him in her power and her strength and i think that he respects that about her he respects that she's the first person in decades if you know not longer centuries that has been a threat to him mm-hmm. and he finds that interesting yeah yeah, he, he can relate to her, I think, in a way that he can't relate to other people. Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't care for people much as a rule, mm-hmm. but I like you, which is like Marina. Yeah. Marina said that too. Clearly, Julia wins over everyone. <laughs> but I just, I find his interactions with julia really fascinating and really meaningful absolutely you know on your point of he's not what we expect he's kind of yeah this humorous character but then he has these just kind of small moments where he's not being sinister but we have a possible sinister reading like Mm -hmm. him liking to watch children play it's just like ugh, what why what does that mean i mean i just in my notes put down when they were in essentially a Chuck E. Cheese Mm -hmm. and he orders a pizza that he puts ketchup on. I'm like, oh, he is evil. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? Like, he says, it's perfectly innocent, I assure you. And I don't think that he's lying about that. Mm -hmm. I think that it is true. I'm, I'm wondering if he honestly likes watching the little kids play because he didn't get to play as a little kid like that, you know? Maybe it makes him happy to some degree to see other kids actually happy, you Mm -hmm. know? Who knows? Maybe he even, you know, if he saw anything suspicious going on, he would do something about it. Uh, We know, at least from when Quentin and Julia went to the past fillery, and he was like, why are you following my sister? You know, so Mm -hmm. I think with those types of details with his character, that's that's my reading of it. Obviously, other people could read it a different way, but it's rare from what I can gather that people who were sexually abused as children become sexual abusers of children. 
if that's what they're going with, I think that that's problematic. It's super problematic. Yeah. <laughs> Bad. Yeah, that is something that is definitely my read, uh, mm-hmm. the same as you, because otherwise I think that there's something really, really problematic here because... Yeah, there's this great graphic novel by Mayday Trip called Something Terrible, where it's autobiographical about their own sexual abuse as a child and how they almost consider themselves like a, re- a werewolf. Like there was, because of the social tropes, they thought that they would become an abuser and becoming a parent became an issue and becoming like having to deal with all of these ideas that there might be something evil inside them mm-hmm. because of what was done to them, mm-hmm. um, because of all of those kinds of issues. It, it was really illuminating in, in how hurtful those kinds of tropes and those kinds of incorrect representations of abuse and abusers uh, can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't actually seen the beast a lie about anything mm-hmm. besides when he was possessing Mike and pretending to be someone else there. But, like, when he's actually interacting with the people as himself, I don't think we've actually seen him lie about anything. Yeah, so that's my read on it. And, yeah, just kind of thinking about his perspective. Yeah, I think is is really important for a villain who is as layered and complex as he is. Absolutely, yeah. And one who has been literally dehumanized throughout the first season mm-hmm. called the beast you can't see his face yeah to start getting those kinds of glimpses into his character is, is absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. yeah but why don't we move into our final little section which is revisiting the title what do you think of knight of crowns <laughs> 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 so boring what i think it should be is moderately socially maladjusted <laughs> because that like describes so many of them absolutely i mean obviously martin isn't moderately mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe extremely but yeah or even just something like consequences because for one that talks about the consequences of what happened at the end of the first season mm-hmm. but also it highlights this theme that we've been talking about of the consequences for their actions and the the agreements that they make. But yeah, I think that that this is neither whimsical nor illuminating for what this episode's about. Yeah, it just sounds like for some reason we went into a King Arthur novel or yeah, something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, well that will wrap up this week then. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we are going to be watching Season 2, Episode 2, Hotel Spa Potions, where the Champagne King turns into the Shit King. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. Find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can become a supporter of the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!